Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you're wondering where the choir is today, you're not getting cheated. Um, There will be no choir in the 11 o'clock service either. Larry Stewart and Rosemary have been called away. There was a death in their family, so they've gone to Tennessee. So if you would, pray for that family. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Daniel. We continue our study of the big picture. In the book Unchristian, David Kinnaman looks at our society and looks at those that he calls outsiders, those people who aren't in the fold of the church. He quotes some Barna statistics about outsiders. A survey done of those born between 1965 and 2002, that next generation we sang about earlier that we saw on the screen. Nine out of 10 outsiders, 87% of those that aren't in the church said that the term judgmental most accurately describes Christians. Of those non-Christians surveyed, 84% said they personally know at least one person who says they're a committed Christian. Yet only 15% thought that the lifestyle of those followers of Christ were any different than theirs. Folks, those are startling statistics. Sobering. If you think about the people outside this church wall who need to be transformed by the gospel of Christ, that is the main view that they have of us. Because they rub shoulders with us. They work with us. They hang out with us. They're our neighbors. And most of them look at us and say, when I think of Christianity, it's judgmental. By the way, when I look at the lives of those committed Christians I know, there's no difference in their life than in my life. We're going to look at a passage of scripture today out of the book of Daniel. At one life that really did make a difference. At one life that stood for the Lord. It made an impact on his community. As we work through the big picture, we're at that point in the life of the nation of Israel. We saw that they had risen to power in the kingdom and, and how God sent prophets to challenge the kings there. We looked at Elijah last time. And now we're in that period of the decline of the nation of Israel in what's known as the captivity. See, the, the nation divided because of disobedience and rebellion. And the northern kingdom was taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. And then later, there was a southern kingdom alone, and the kings were still there, the prophets were still preaching, you need to repent, but the people didn't repent. Then the Babylonians came and took them into captivity. So this is the period in the Old Testament known as the captivity. So as I went through and looked at those prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, what could I share from that period of the captivity? And I just came back to this story over and over again. Because we're so familiar with it, I hope we won't miss some of these key truths about the life of Daniel. As we look at this passage, we're going to look at four marks of godliness in the life of the man, Daniel. Lessons from his life. But I want us to walk through the passage in Daniel chapter 6. Did I give you all enough time to find Daniel? I know, I've been there. Darius is the new king. He has just taken over as the Babylonian empire that took the children of Israel into captivity. Now the Babylonian empire is crumbling and the Persians have come in and Darius is the new guy on the block. He's trying to establish his order and his kingdom. So let's follow the story. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. 
stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. So these three are like three presidents. He's divided up the kingdom in 120 regions, and now three men are like prime ministers or presidents, and Daniel is one of them. By this time, Daniel is in his 80s. We know the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, how they wouldn't take the king's diet. And we have the story of the three Hebrew children denying uh, the, the worship of, of pagan gods and they're thrown in the fiery furnace and how God liberates them and frees them. Now Daniel is still there. He's still faithful. And look at verse 3. I'm sorry, the last part of verse 2. The satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. A lot of trust put in these presidents, these administrators. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. So Darius has in mind to take Daniel, this Judean, this Jew, this person who's not even one of them, because of his life, because of what he saw in him, he's going to make him the head of the whole kingdom. That's his plan. Isn't it interesting how God does that? Throughout the Old Testament, he takes men who live godly lives and they even excel. They're the cream that rises to the crop even in a pagan political system. The administrators, here's where jealousy comes in. The administrators and satraps in verse 4, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge of corrupt or corruption. For he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. These men are so jealous of Daniel, they're going to bring him down. These men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of God. Can I paraphrase? These guys looked at Daniel and they said, he's never going to do anything wrong. We're going to have to trap him because he's so obedient to his God. Maybe we can fix it so he falls that way. So the administrators and the satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, boy, they sound flowery in their speech, don't they? Establish the edict and sign the document so that, as the law of the Medes and the Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So Darius, King Darius, signed the document. Now I want you to look at verse, verse 7 there. Did you notice they said all the administrators and satraps and governors have met? All but one. Daniel wasn't in that. They go to the king with a lie. The king makes the assumption when they say, everyone's talked about this king. You ever hear that in the church? Well, they all said this. Who are they all? Everyone thinks that way. Do they really? That's what they said. Everyone's met king. It's a lie. They didn't have Daniel in the loop. So the, the Bible says that King Darius signed the document. It sounded like a good idea to him. Now, put yourself in Darius's place. You're the new king. The Babylonian Empire is crumbled. You want the people, all the subjects of these kingdoms, these small groups, to be loyal to you, the new king. So it sounds like a good idea. For 30 days, let's put out a decree that everybody respects me as king so I can kind of rally the troops, so I can gather all the people so that they'll be obedient to me and they'll know I'm in charge and then after that we can go on. It sounded like a good idea, especially since all of his leadership, he thought, had thought of that. Look at verse 10. 
When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house, the windows in its upper room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to God just as he'd done before. You notice verse 10 doesn't say, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he started wringing his hands, saying, oh no, what am I going to do about this? Oh, can I still worship God and, and not lose my life? And he didn't worry, he didn't fret, he didn't decide, you know, for a while I can hide out and I can worship my God in secret and nobody will find out about it. The Bible says in verse 10, Daniel just kept doing what he'd always done. He kept worshiping God three times a day, facing Jerusalem, because he, he was clinging to the promise that the prophets had given that Jerusalem would be restored, and that's, what's gonna, that's exactly what was going to happen. But Daniel's looking to Jerusalem, and, he, and he's praying to God, God, restore our nation, restore our city. He's doing what he had always done, even though this edict came out. Basically, Daniel gets word, Daniel, if you worship God, you're going to die. So what does he do? He worships God. Verse 11, these men then went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king. By the way, I'm sure they were waiting for Daniel. It's not that they just showed up one day. They'd set it up to watch him because they knew that's what he'd done. So they approached the king and asked about this edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any man who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as the law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands, it's irrevocable. They remind him, king, didn't you say this? He said, yeah, you guys were here. We did it, sure. Then they, they replied to the king, verse 13, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles has ignored you, the king. The edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. Not at Daniel. I'm sure he was displeased at these guys for lying to him. I'm sure he was displeased with himself for signing such a, a law that would put people in jeopardy. And he set his mind on rescuing Daniel, verse 14, and made every effort till sundown to deliver him. Looking for loopholes, I bet. Looking for loopholes. Verse 15, then these men went to the king and said, you, as king, know it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. They're reminding him again. Like he needed that. So the king gave the order. I'm sure that was one of the toughest things he'd ever done. And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. But listen to this. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Here's what the king's saying. You know what, Daniel? I've seen your life. I've watched you. Daniel, my prayer is that your God is really the true God, that he would rescue you. The stone was brought in the place over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring, the signet rings of his nobles that no, nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Archaeologists have found all these cylinders that were used during that time to seal uh, things like that. There, there are thousands of them in museums. They put their seal on it. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. In other words, they didn't try to cheer him up. Someone said as I was reading about this, who slept better that night? Darius or Daniel? At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. He reached the den. He cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God. Isn't that interesting? He's recognizing already 
The king said, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? In other words, Daniel, please let me see that you're still alive and everything you've mentioned and everything you've said and everything you lived is true. And Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. Long live the king, in other words. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me, for I was found innocent before him. In other words, blameless, a man of above reproach, who'd done nothing wrong. Also, I have, committed, I have not committed a crime against you, my king. The, the leader said he had, remember? The leader said, Daniel's against you, king. He says, I'm not. The king was overjoyed, gave orders to Daniel to take Daniel out of the den. And Daniel was taken out of the den, uninjured, for he had trusted in his God. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this, but Darius makes another decree that Daniel's God is the living God. Four things about Daniel's life this morning that I want us to highlight. Number one, as we look at this story and God, and and I'm not going to talk so much about God delivering him from the lion's den as I am about the circumstances that put him there, all right? Because we usually live there, don't we? We live in the circumstances that put us there. Number one, our work ethic Our work ethic as a believer will be different. If we're going to have a mark of godliness as people watch us, our work ethic is going to be different. Look at verse 3. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators. The Bible says he had an extraordinary spirit. As he worked in the government, as he worked as one of those presidents, the guys that worked with him, under him, around him, and the king over him noticed his worth ethic was different. His, his desire to be the best he could be at his job, which at that time was a political ruler, was the best that anyone had. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, your work ethic should be better than anybody else on the job. It breaks my heart that most Christians have a bad testimony at work. Listen to some actual complaints that employers have stated about Christians on the job. They tend to be presumptuous, especially taking advantage of a Christian boss. Shame on us. If because our boss is a Christian, we desire special treatment. So another employer said, it's the old problem of attitude. I find them to be negative, critical, and resistant to change. These are unbelievers talking about Christians in the workplace. One one employer said, incompetence. It seems to me that the last several Christians I've hired could not or would not do the job. Now this one's, this one's convicting. They often seem preoccupied with other things, like witnessing and church, whatever. Now you say, Pastor, don't you tell us to witness on the job? Don't you tell us to invite people to church? You bet. But if all our employers are getting is that and they're not getting a good employee, why should they even bother to listen to us? Chuck Swindoll says, show me a lazy, irritating Christian on the job, and I'll show you an office or a store or manager or customer who isn't interested in the message that that Christian has. Can I paraphrase that? If you're not a good employee, why should they want to hear the story you have about your Savior? Because he, because what your employer's interested in, what your coworkers are interested in, is are you going to help them on the job? Tell you what, one of the most powerful witnesses we can have is in the workplace. And one of the most detrimental witnesses we can have also is in the workplace. When I got to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, I, I knew I'd have to find a job to support me and, and, and Kelly. It was just two of us back then. 
And so I started looking for work. And you know what I found out as I started answering one ads and looking at the stuff posted on the bulletin board and talking to people in the community? The worst reputation of anybody hired in Fort Worth were the seminary students from Southwestern Seminary. And you think it would have changed in 20 years? My son works in a store where some seminary students work. And he said, Dad, they're terrible workers. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have their head together. What a shame. Daniel so worked that they looked and his work ethic was different. Yours should be, Christian. Number two, if we're going to have the mark of godliness like Daniel, our integrity will be noticed. People will look at us and they will notice the integrity of our lives. Look at verse four. The administrators, satraps, Therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption. For he was trustworthy. No negligence or corruption was found in him. Integrity will be noticed. Those who don't know Christ will look at us and say, they're faithful. They're honest. They're right. Someone said, A lot of Christians talk Christianity by the yard, but we walk it by the inch. Integrity will be noticed. There's a story of a man in Long Beach, California, who had showed up at a chicken place to pick up some chicken to go have a picnic. And he showed up at the chicken place with his date, and they ordered the chicken, and they gave it to him in a box, and they drove to the park and opened up the box of chicken, and there was no chicken in it. Instead, it was the bank bag See, the manager's practice was to put the bank bag in a box of chicken and take it, you know, out to the car in the bank where people wouldn't suspect he had a lot of money. So this person says, we've got the day's deposit with us. So he and his date go back to the chicken place and they say to the manager, I think you lost something. And the manager just, oh, he's so thankful. He was worried to death. Couldn't figure out what had happened in the money. So he tells this man, oh, oh, come here. I've got to have your name and, and we're going to put this in the paper. You're the most honest man in town. We've got to let people know about this. And the guy says, please, don't. Don't talk about this too much, so because, see, I'm married, and my date that I'm with is not my wife. Folks, there's not much integrity in that, is there? You may have people at your job site. You may have people where you live, and they look at you, and they think you're a person of integrity, but God looks at the heart. Will you be a person of integrity? Someone said, so live your life that you could sell your parrot to the town gossip and not worry about it. Third characteristic, third trait of Daniel. If we're going to be a godly person, our obedience to Christ will be noticed. Our obedience will be noticed. Verse 5, the men said, we will never find a charge against Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. What they're saying is, we know Daniel's going to be faithful to the law of his God. We know he's going to be obedient. So we're going to have to find a, a disconnect between his obedience to God and obedience to the king. And they found it. Listen, if you are going to be a godly person, if you're going to have this mark that Daniel had, your obedience to Christ will be noticed. Someone said the greatest need of Christianity in the world is not a definition of Christianity. The greatest need the world has is a demonstration of Christianity. See, you don't just tell them what you believe. You've got to live it. And they will see right through it. Y'all know that? They're they're like our kids. 
You can't pretend. Your kids see right through that. They, they know what's going on. They know what you're up to. They know what your values are, even though you tell them, no, we're going to church and we're going to be this way. They know your heart. Folks, I tell you what, the outside world knows us too. And they see it. My prayer is that they would see obedience. Obedience. I love the story of the Cairo garbage man. They have a place there called the Garbage City. And several million, I think like seven million people lived in Cairo at the time. And one of those garbage men who shows up of, of hundreds with their with their ox, their cart, with a horse-drawn cart, to gather the garbage in the city. And they gather the garbage, and they, they don't take it to the dump. They take it back to the garbage city. They take it back to their house. And there they go through the garbage looking for stuff that's valuable, stuff that they could use. And this one garbage man found a watch. At the time, it was valued at $11,000. This is back in the 70s when it was found. Man's name was inscribed on the watch, and that garbage man went back into the city and looked up that man and found that man and gave him back his watch. Later, that businessman was interviewed, and this is what he said. He said, the man came to me, and and he said, my Christ told me that I'm to be honest. So in an interview, because of this man's act of obedience, this Egyptian businessman later shared this. He said, I didn't know Christ at the time, But I told that garbage man that I saw Christ in him. I told him, because of what you have done and your example, I will worship the Christ you are worshiping. The folks, he could have kept that watch and nobody would have known. He could have sold that watch and moved out of the garbage dump, but he didn't. He obeyed the word of God that said, be honest. And because of that, God took that and impacted a wealthy businessman through the poorest of the poor. Your obedience the Christ will be noticed. Number four, the fourth trait of Daniel. Our walk with Christ won't be influenced by our circumstances. Our walk with Christ won't be influenced by our circumstances. Look at verse 10. When Daniel heard that the, that the document had been signed, he went into his house The windows in its upper room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed and he gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. If you underline in your Bible or highlight, that's the phrase you want right there. Just as he had done before. Nothing changed for Daniel. Now he may have been more intense in prayer, but his practice of prayer didn't change. Circumstances of the guy's life didn't cause him. Change his worship. He was consistent. Some of us make a commitment to spend time with God every day, and it doesn't take much to derail us from that, does it? Maybe sleeping in another five minutes or getting sidetracked. Consistency. Daniel was consistent. I don't know what the circumstances are of your life right now. Most likely, they're like my life. I have good days where I think everything's going great, and I have days where I don't think it's going great. I have days where I'm challenged and I'm stretched to the max. But if I will look at Daniel's example, I will still still stay faithful to my private worship time with God. 
I will still stay faithful to my corporate time with God and his people. Do you know that one reason why most people drop out of church, there's a crisis in their life, and the enemy, Satan, isolates them from the people of God. Now, they're not rebelling. They're not saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm having a bad time, so I'm going to hide out from Christians. They don't do that. It just happens in their heart and their life that when they struggle, they tend to pull back. And the enemy says, oh, good, I've got them where I want them now. And we just wonder why they're not here. And we look around at empty seats and say, well, yeah, you know, whatever. Most people, when the crisis comes, the tendency is to drop out of worship. Daniel was faithful. Most people, when the crisis comes, the tendency is to say, God, I don't understand you, and then they stop. We'll close with this. In South Africa, a man named Jeremy Begbie had, was an author he had gone to a South African township, one of the poorest in the area, to be a part of a worship service. He got together, and right before the worship service was to begin, someone in the service told him that the house around the corner had just been burned to the ground because the man who lived there was suspected to be a thief. A week before that, a tornado cut through the township, and 50 homes were destroyed. Five people had been killed. And then that very night, before they came to church, a gang had surrounded a 14-year-old who was a church member, a member of their Sunday school, and stabbed him to death. So the pastor stands up. Folks, those are circumstances, right? That's the stuff of life. The pastor stands up, and, and Jeremy says he listened to his prayer. The pastor begins his opening prayer. Lord, you are the creator and the sovereign, but why did the wind come like a snake and tear our roofs off? Why did a mob cut short the life of one of our own children when he had everything to live for? Over and over again, Lord, we are in the midst of death. Well, that'll encourage you when you start a church service that way. Jeremy writes, as he spoke, the congregation responded with, with a dreadful silence and some sighs and some groaning. And then, once he finished his prayer, very slowly, the whole congregation began to sing. First, very quietly, then louder, they sang and they sang, song after song of praise. Praise to the God who in Jesus Christ had plunged into the very worst of circumstances to give us promise and hope. Folks, when the circumstances are overwhelming, I want to challenge us. Let's stay faithful. Let's do like Daniel. Let's worship like we've always worshiped. Let's pray like we've always prayed because circumstances are out there. And yes, we may cry out to God, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why did this happen? The bottom line, God's still God. We can trust him. We can walk in obedience. Will you walk that way? Will you walk in such a way that the people notice your integrity? They see you as the best employee there. They trust you because they know you're obedient to your God. And they watch you, regardless of the circumstances of your life. They know you're going to be faithful. Let's pray together.